0: The conversation on the podcast today, well, I I think it's safe to say it's a series of unguarded moments. Now, if you're familiar with the band that my guest on the program is in, you'll realize how clever that quip is. Uh, If you're not familiar, uh, just take my word for it. Oh, very clever. I spent all night coming up with it. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. My guest today on the program, Steve Kilby. Let me tell you a little bit about Steve Kilby. Well, if you want to do a deep dive on Steve Kilby, prepare to go super deep. Like, block off a weekend deep. The British-born, Australian-raised Steve Kilby is one of the most productive artists of all time. He's like a musical shark. He literally can't stop creating. We could do a podcast devoted to his discography alone, and that might be a three-parter. So keep in mind, when I give you the expurgated tale of Mr. Kilby's releases, it's not the whole story by a long shot. With the legendary Sydney outfit, The Church, he's put out 25 albums, including classics like Heyday, Starfish, Gold Afternoon Fix, After Everything Now This, and Further Deeper the ARIA Hall of Fame inductees are still very much an ongoing proposition and have a new record in the works. Meanwhile, Kilby has put out records and side projects like Jack Frost with the Go Betweens' Grant McLennan, Hex with Game Theory's Donette Thayer, and Isidore with Jeffrey Kane of Remy Zero. He's also put out a few records with Martin Kennedy of All India Radio, and he had a band with his brother Russell Kilby called Guilt Trip. Believe me, this could go on. There's a lot of Kilby out there, and his work is poetic, melodic, and authentic. A singer of tremendous sonorous finesse and singular phrasing, Steve Kilby is a true original. His new solo double album, The Hall of Counterfeits, is as raw as it is ravishing. It's a masterful collection of music that's spontaneous, elliptical, and fully realized. He's a poet, a producer, a painter a partner, a dad. He does it all. And when you read about all he's accomplished, it makes you think, my God, I'd better get on the ball. This is a great chat, unguarded, totally real, and redolent with nerve and grace. You'd expect nothing less from Steve Kilby. Well, he's here, and we're going to talk to him. So here's my chat with Steve Kilby, right here on Stereo Embers the podcast.
1: in a little flat um in coogee in sydney down by the, i'm one street back from the sea um i i've spent a lot of time um i've spent a lot of time in the last two years rediscovering playing acoustic guitar and songwriting um, it's it's a strange thing i didn't get into music most people get into music playing acoustic guitar and busking and singing. And I I went straight in playing bass. Um, I never really played acoustic guitar much. I was a bass player and then I was a singer and I was in bands. And um, I haven't spent, it's strange thing, I haven't spent a lot of time just sitting around with an acoustic guitar writing songs. And then when I when I got my four track in 1977, I, I thought that my way of writing songs was the other way, which was building songs up, like sort of writing little bits and pieces and putting them all together. And then just in the last two years, I, well, I guess, no, like the last year or so, because of sort of, every, you know, everything being closed down, I rediscovered sort of writing songs you know, sitting down with a guitar and strumming it and going, I was walking down the street and sort of writing a song that way instead of the other way of um, jigging bits around and sort of eventually come, you know, having all the backing track and eventually coming up with a melody and words over the top. I've been sort of, um, I even gone back to some, uh, something I abandoned, which I didn't think worked for me. And that was writing lyrics first and then and then putting them to a melody Um, I found that was working for me too. So I've sort of, I've really abandoned that, that old way of writing. And I, I sort of, I feel a little bit disdainful towards it now. And I feel like this is how, this is how I want to write songs. Like just sitting down and, um, if, if I was a better piano player, that would be, that would be another way of doing it, sitting down with a piano or a guitar and just letting the song come out of nowhere
0: doing it with the acoustic guitar can you get to the heart of the matter faster is that what the difference is
1: um you well obviously yeah you do because it's like um so when when i first started trying to write songs i tried to write them with an acoustic guitar and singing and and the songs i wrote i was really really unhappy with and then when i got my four track recorder in 1977. I left all the h- hopeless bands I was playing. in. I just sat at home and figured out recording and writing. And I figured I I, found, I sort of hit upon a method where I'd pointillistically build up a song until I had a complete backing track. And then a song that you would never be able to write with an or probably wouldn't write with the acoustic guitar. And then I would sing over the top and sort of let the music sort of percolate and suggest. So now I'm down very much close to the heart of the matter. I'm sort of, um, I just sit down with a guitar. I have some marijuana, smoke it or eat it, which has always worked for me. And I believe always will. I, I I get in the mood and I, I have my intention, bang, the songs all just, they come out really quick. I mean, the song takes about as long as the song is to write, you know, it happens really, really fast. And I like it that way. I don't like mucking around with them anymore. I've been in the studio a bit, trying to work on songs the old way, that old fiddly, I would take this from here and put that there and do that. And I find it really uh, perplexing now. Like, even though I once touted that as the way of doing it, sort of, I still don't feel like that anymore. I feel like I want to write songs all in one go.
0: So the ones that take longer, what do you do? Just to kind of go, ah, I'm not even going to bother with this one. Or like you start to mistrust their, their length.
1: I, I feel I'm just closer to the source this way. Yeah. Uh, and it's just, uh, you know, it's just really good to shake it up. Um, I, I, I have the most beautiful acoustic guitar in the world. It's a 12 string guild. It's the top of a line that on my 60th birthday, a consortium of friends bought for me as a surprise. And they all put in a few hundred dollars and got me this beautiful guitar. And I've just really fallen in love with playing it again, um, just to completely turn things around. And it, it's great, you know, when, when you have a kind of a breakthrough, even if it's a breakthrough, even if it's a revolt back into what you used to do, to get away from, I just, I'm just feeling like that other, that other way isn't, doesn't work for me anymore. I don't really, I don't really like it. I sort of, I've, I love just this and the 12 string, you know, you, you strum the 12 string and all the implications of this great song are there because of all that, all the overtones and undertones. Um, So I know I'm really enjoying myself doing it this way at the moment. I mean, I could, I can, I could still, I can still do it that other way, but I'm enjoy, enjoying the immediacy of this. And uh, I feel like, I feel like whatever, sometimes, sometimes it's quite a, um, like, I don't, I don't want to overplay this thing, but sometimes it's quite <laughs> a mystical process yeah. that I just sit there and the song kind of downloads into my head all of the words and the melody a little bit of jiggling around and like the chord progressions come um i guess that's why i'm really going for a little bit of a dylan period right now um and i think about all the incredible songs that he wrote that way he just sat down and had the absolute audacity to pluck a song like just like a woman, or you know, out just out of the air, you know, five minutes before that it didn't exist, and then suddenly he just he just sort of receives these these songs. Uh, I'm really interested in that at the moment, and in in doing that, and sort of the thought of going into a studio and fiddling around with Pro Tools doesn't really uh, interest me much.
0: Well, I mean, the output has never been an issue for you. You've always you've been very productive and i imagine now with the immediacy with this process you'll be even more productive which is hard to get my head around i mean <laughs> it
1: yes yeah um yeah definitely now definitely i i except for the end the end of my heroin addiction i was struggling then um in the 90s towards the end of the 90s um i not i i saw sort of, i was riding on a sort of a um i was writing on overdrive i was it was like i i still some part of me knew how to write but i didn't really know what to write about and i had a really bad connection to my news to my to the thing that had always has always been there for me i i met i remember when i was 16 and someone said hey you should write some poems for the school magazine you're a pretty you know you're that kind of smart ass guy that writes poem and i i made this incredible discovery that i could just sit i could just sit down and write stuff it would just sort of it would just sort of pour out of um it would come out of the air for me i and i've never never really had writer's block when it comes to anything at all and it like if someone said to me sit down right now and write a you know 50,000 word essay on david bowie i know i could I, I know I could just sit there and, and bang, it would all, it would all be there. I, I never sit there struggling going, "Oh, I don't know what to write about. It's, it's always, um, it's always been there for me to access. And now, um, and now with, you know, with the guitar and a sort of a renewed interest in this way of doing it, it's really, it just flows. It, I, I mean, I'm gonna, I writing so many songs, I can't, it's fairly really hard i mean a lot of people think i'm probably putting out too many records too fast um and i saw some some people saying oh we're struggling with his output at the moment because there's so much you know like wow you know you just released a record but i i don't know what else to do you know yeah. um yeah
0: <laughs> that's what you do it's what you do i mean you can't have enough steve kilby is my my feeling. Oh, that's very nice for you. To say well, it's true. Um, when you you mentioned the heroin stuff, when you hear the music you were producing during that time period, can you hear how it got in the way of the process? Can you hear the heroin to you?
1: Yeah, I can. Oh. I um, I I I recently bought a little car and it's got a CD player in it. So I haven't got many CDs because um, I I like most people. I'm just listening to iTunes. And I, you know, driving around, I look for CDs to play, and I found a CD called Hologram of Baal, which was um, we made in the late '90s. Um, and I listen to me, and I can just hear how I'm sort of struggling, struggling to sort of find anything to really to sing about. And it just sounds, it, it was sort of like, ah, oh, it was, it was still okay. It was okay, but it was like, there's a there's a blanket between me and whatever I'm trying to do. There's this, I, I'm sort of like, I'm baffled in both sense of the word. Like I'm baffled as to what to sing about, but also there's this kind of baffle around me, like you might baffle a really loud drummer. And I, um, there's this, it was a pretty hilarious. There's a, um, what came with, if you bought one of the first copies of Hologram of Baal, which is the one I've got, came with an album called Bastard Universe, which is the band jamming. We found out CDs could have 80 minutes, so we decided to make an 80-minute piece of music. And I sort of cut out for about three quarters of it. The band sort of pl- plow along. And right at the end, I make this one, I sort of wake up and make this return playing the bass. Um, it's pretty sort of indicative. I I, I, I was just, yeah, I was sort of half closed down. Um, and when I hear what I'm doing now, I I sort of it sort of contrasts wildly because I feel like, I mean, it's it's a trap to always think what you're doing now is the best thing, right? Uh, right. And that that that's something. It's very hard to assess your own stuff, but I I, I really I, when I hear that stuff, it it seems like a guy who was sort of sleepwalking a bit, you know, just going through the motions because he had to make an album. And he's sitting in there. I was either, you know, I was, I was wait, either waiting for the heroin to arrive and I wasn't very creative or I had the heroin and I was like half asleep.
0: Yeah, it, both, both, uh, both places, not great places to be.
1: No. Do you know that? You know that yourself?
0: No, but just from the way you describe it, uh, it just yeah. doesn't sound like for a creative person that. No, like no, it
1: wasn't. No. Yeah. yeah. I remember Marty said to me, you have two states you have panic or you have sleepiness. He said that's all there is with you that one or the other but you know it was something I it was something I apparently I look at it now something I had to go through yeah I can look at I can look at my life and see although it was really a terrible thing to to go through when I came out the other end I was a better person for it and uh heroin relieved me of all of my money and but it also relieved me of a lot of sort of um arrogance and disdain and sort of i i had a i had a feeling like i had a lot more compassion for people because i had sort of been down in the gutter and i'd seen a lot of stuff i never thought i would have ever encountered i i i sort of i had hung out with the sort of lower echelons of society and I found almost all of those people had a really good reason why they were down and out and and a lot of it was terrible childhoods and stuff which I hadn't had um so I I don't I don't really regret I don't really regret it that much I don't beat myself up about it and sort of you know from a comfortable distance now of 21 years yeah um it's sort of interesting to look at to look at addiction and and um yeah
0: well if you have like the heroine chapter is different than the heroine book so you know
1: that's <laughs> absolutely absolutely yeah yeah and yeah. that yeah it's just a it's just a chapter now it, it's long gone
0: uh, I spoke I talked to Robert from the go-betweens and he told me that he was is a notoriously slow songwriter and he said he would come to a recording session with two songs and Grant would have like 42.
2: Oh um, yeah.
0: Right. Grant
1: but, Yeah, Grant was knocking them out.
0: Knocking them out. But I'm imagining that you, you and Grant must have 182 when you got together. And Grant, you know, it must have been crazy.
1: Grant, Grant and I never short of songs. Um and um Grant had all these cassettes. I I wonder what happened to them. One night, one night we got sort of loaded and we wrote like 20 songs and we were just having so much fun and laughing about how good the songs were and how easy they were coming. And then I know the cassette disappeared and I I would love to hear them now, but like we were just individually and together, we were, we were knocking them out. Grant never had writer's block. He, I mean, he just wouldn't even countenance that. He he was, he was a guy, he was sitting there writing songs in front of me and I go, wow, when did you write that? And he said, I wrote it just then. He would sort of whole chunks of songs would download into his head.
0: Yeah, it's unbelievable how how attuned both of you really ended up being in terms of like letting that stuff just come come and, and you just soak it in and, and translate it. Um, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was great working with him. And um, we certainly sort of learned a few things off each other.
0: What's the most important thing you think you learned from him?
1: I learned that thing that you can just sit down, pick up a guitar and go, I was walking down the street and blah, 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 And all the chords and the words that you can expect that to happen. And you just sort of follow this, you follow this thing. And it, it, it can, you know, it can just, it can happen. I also... We, it was great we would pick up on little phrases and things we the other one would say and and um I, j- I just i i learned sort of spontaneity from him and he learned i think from me he might have learned um a little bit about recording because he wasn't really he wasn't he wasn't he didn't know a real lot about recording and i, I know quite a lot about recording i know i know some sort of methods to get things i know ways of getting things going when when things sort of stall my own um my own little box of um brian eno's sort of um in in my head you know the um you know the little he has those cards that he gets out Eno, i saw an interview with someone the other day and he said yeah that's great unless you've got your own set of cards in your head you don't need brian eno's cards and i've always had those I've always had those cars where, when I've sat down, I don't know what to do. I'll go, oh, oh let's let's do something a bit different then, and and so Grant Nice will work like that.
0: Yeah, your your stuff is always so textured and nuanced, and I wonder now if the next record would just be you with an acoustic guitar. Is that too vulnerable? Is that too spare?
1: Yeah, I I sort of I was um, I always look. I've just I just re-recorded the Church's first album with an acoustic guitar, and I was I was planning to have just me and an acoustic guitar, and in the end, I couldn't help tinkering and just putting a little bit of other things on there. I sort of, I, I, find, I find just a voice and acoustic guitar a little bit too, I don't think you can get the full, uh, some people can, you know, but um me, I always wanna have a few more little things on there. It's just my, I need a bit more elaboration than that.
0: Yeah, like otherwise, you know, a Robin Hitchcock could do something just an acoustic guitar that would I could see that working just fine. Yeah, he's he's
1: a really good acoustic guitarist. Um, he's really good. He he gets a real lot out of his acoustic guitar. He's a lot better than me. That's why I have to do overdubs.
0: <laughs> Are you practicing a lot with the guitar now? Are you do you find yourself carrying it around and working on it?
1: Um, I don't practice. I only write. I never practice on anything. I don't like practicing. I really hate I'm notoriously bad at rehearsals. I hate rehearsing. I hate practicing. Um, So the only time I pick it up is to write a song. Um, But because because of COVID and playing songs on the uh, on Instagram and stuff for my living like playing and going you know if you like my songs throw me some money because i can't do any other gigs um i got in a i've been playing a real lot and my playing has really improved um which surprised me because i thought i thought i was always doomed to be a very very awful guitarist and i've sort of i'm not too bad now on i mean i'm never going to I'm never going to be Jose Feliciano. There's a strange, there's a strange name to pull out of the bag. But I just remember him when I got my first bass guitar. My uncle Stan came to visit and said, um, "Hey, Steve, we've heard you've got you know a new guitar. Uh, give us a track and I uh, give us a song." And I got out my bass guitar and sort played, you know, boom, 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 and he was like, "Oh." And then the next week he came around and gave me a Jose Feliciano record. And he said, this is how a guitar is supposed to sound. <laughs> so I saw, it's always stuck in my head. Jose Feliciano is the go-to man.
0: Yeah. And he's also, he's so nimble as a player too.
1: He is. Yeah. 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 yeah he but, is. Especially as he can't see. Right. <laughs> That's That makes it even more incredible, I think.
0: What, what happened to you creatively in the last year with, with COVID? Was it, was it, um, did you find that there was a reservoir of creativity you hadn't even tapped into or, or was it just as usual? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I did. Um, Well, okay. What, how, how it all really came into, into effect was I played, I played, you know, I first got on the, uh, on COVID had happened. I was playing on Instagram once a week doing a little concert. And then I said, next week, I'm going to give you all of a record, a whole church record in bang in. And then I spent all week learning it, like really learning it and having to sit down and figure it out and play it. And like getting really sort of angry with the went with myself. And um, I did that for about three or four weeks playing these different albums in their entirety in various I would know how good it was, it was sort of, wasn't that great. Um, and one week I thought, wow, it'd be easier to, to write new songs rather than going back and learning all these ones. So I, I rationally said this time next week, I'm going to have a brand new album for you, a uh, brand new record. I'm going to write, I'm going to write 10 brand new songs, um, sort of as challenge to myself. And then I did. And then when I'd written the songs, I wanted to record them. And I went up to a studio where I'd done a little bit of work with the church, and these players kind of materialised, sort of people I'd known, and they and I discovered this whole new way of sort of doing things, um, which was became Eleven Women, and then um, I was very enamoured with that record, um, and I really liked the, the loose lazy kind of feeling of it the rambling the sort of things just i like i like songs that meander along i was really impressed with um big stars third album the legendary album called third album or sister lovers where some of the songs kind of meander along and sometimes the drummer stops and sometimes (laughs) things come in out of nowhere and go away i mean At the time when I heard when I first heard that record when I first got it back in 1975 or something, it was quite. It was a quite a revelation because I would never thought music could sort of stumble and fall and break down and come back together. Uh, I never thought that was part of the palette I always thought everything would sort of you know, everything should be should happen, and I didn't think of that. And and so I really I, I really like that idea. And and with eleven women, um, you know, I taught I would I, I would I record the songs with, with the drummer and then the other guys would come in and we do overdubs, but no sweating over it. It's like I want mistakes. I want if you're a really good musician, your mistakes can be interesting. Um you don't have to play all the time, you know, the the songs. The song's already there on the acoustic guitar. So the players, it's not like a band where everybody plays all the time. That's another thing I wanted to get away from, the idea that everything has to play all the time. Um, You go back and listen to a a really great Frank Sinatra record, and he's got an orchestra. The instruments don't all, not all the instruments don't all play all the time. Sometimes Mm. things stop. And the violins might take over and then the piano might come in and with a double bass and the drums, and then that might all go away, you know, for a harp and he might sing a bit. And then, you know, it things comment on the on the song. They're not all just, not everybody just furiously pounding along, but I like the idea of instruments, the instruments, making little comments and me. I love the idea of meandering and wandering a lot. I, you know, I, I get the, I say to the guys, uh, you know, let your instrument wander through this song, you know, just, just jam along with it and, you know, and then it all, it all can become part of this sort of this texture. I'm um, so I'm really against sort of organized, organized, sort of the epitomes of the, of the eighties and what that became with that boom, boom, kah, boom, and everybody you know, when we did starfish and you got guys going. You know the timing and uh, and everything has to be sort of sort of quantized and structural and all of that i i'm sort of rebelling against that idea and i'm going back to the the idea of rambling rambling like music telling a song uh like a like a conversation you're having a conversation with someone let it twist and turn and change and evolve let there be moments of silence let there let it speed up let it slow down let it so all of that and, and everything i learned from 11 women is focused into this new one the hall of counterfeits have you actually heard that yet
0: yeah yeah
1: yeah so that that this is this is sort of the so now this is the epitome of my new old music so <laughs> this so as opposed to this this awful 1980s thing where guys going you know everything like You know, we'd we'd make records where I'd record the vocals 200 times, and then they'd pick the the best 50 of all of those, and they'd sit there switching a word or even a syllable. And so the whole thing's a patchwork and all the the other instruments, you know, we'll take that bit of guitar from take five, and we'll take that bit of guitar from track seven. And so the albums are sort of, you know, a a big patchwork of all these, so-called perfect moments right to get a perfect song but why should music be perfect who 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 even wanted that and i was so lost in the zeitgeist making those records with in california with those guys were telling me everything had to be perfect you know i recorded gold afternoon fix sitting there with a bass guitar and a drum machine and what he walked staring at me boy you know, after a few days of that, you don't want to play anything adventurous because if you fuck it up, he's gonna do it again, do it again, do it again. And like he's he's so and that's and then when I'd finished the guitarist, the same thing, everything was per The record's perfect. You won't find a stray note, you won't find hesitation it's, or right. but so what? What does who who ever asked for perfect music? Not me. I I I like. I, you know, I go back and listen to the Stones and Dylan and the Beatles and they weren't perfect. They weren't always in tune. You couldn't always hear what Mick Jagger... Sometimes on some really famous Rolling Stones song, Mick, the band's playing here. Mick Jagger sounds like he's calling out from another room. It's His true. Vocal is, so, is so far back in the mix. Yeah. Yeah, so that's... that's it. But, you know, when when all that perfection started happening in the 80s, when when in in the in the middle of the 80s and and the drum machine and you know according to the guys in california the worst thing a song could do is speed up it's like no i don't like this take the song sped up slightly towards the end but what's wrong with that isn't that one of the palettes isn't that one of the textures a musician has to speed up or slow down i mean excessive speeding up isn't isn't great when a song just gets faster and faster and faster because it's out of control. But sometimes, you know, if songs getting exciting, why can't it, who said it can't speed up? Who said it can't slow down to, you know? So um, I've sort of, having rejected all of that and the idea that recordings, you know, we used to spend five days getting a fucking tambourine sound, just stupid fucking things i've rejected that whole thing and my my thing with this record is this is live it's fresh the guys don't really know the songs that well they've just heard them and they just come in and they get in the spirit of it and um and uh, everything's done quickly you know you know roger picks up his cello and i go you're going to have two passes get it right in the first one or get it right in the second one or a combination i'm not going to sit around all day fucking around with your cello you know if you want to play your cello get it right you know do the the percussion like go in there and do the percussion you've got two takes do do whatever you like there's going to be two takes and making it never to lose the immediacy by dwelling and raking over it all and then heaven forbid putting it all through a computer and getting this bit and this bit and this bit none of that happened the only use of the computer was to record the songs um i'm not I, I couldn't I couldn't it's very hard to go back to tape um, in reality because it it wastes so much time while you're waiting for it to to rewind and stuff but so the only bit of computer was recording it and then it was all kind of live that's yeah, my the- that's my so my that my revelation of how I, I'm gonna do things that's how I want to do things from now on like quickly and live and while well, everybody's still in love with it like you know like you'd be we spent we spent three months recording 10 songs when we did starfish three months uh like you start to fucking hate it and just you, and you you're dreading like you're doing the 200th take of a song and you're dreading someone making a mistake or speeding up so everybody's just playing as carefully as they can because they just want to get out of there I mean, nobody wants to stand there playing. I don't want to play it, even the best song in the world, I don't want to play it 200 times. You know, you just want to,
2: ah!
0: Yeah. It's it's, not what it's all about. It sounds positively wearying. I mean, I couldn't even imagine it. Yeah. You know? And I would would imagine it also would put you in a foul mood. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Right? Definitely. And the results, the results, um... I don't know, I don't like, I don't I don't want perfect music. I don't want something absolutely perfect. I want something with life and sadness and happiness and you know spontaneity and um you know improvisation and you know all those all those great things. Uh so I at the time I, I, I was really uneasy with it. And they they you really picked on our drummer and and drove him mad by he was this, you know, Richard Plug's this. Teenage wonder kid that sat down to kid kit and just played like the, the the creature on the Muppets, just a, a flailing. He just knew what to do. But when you suddenly reduced him down to like trying to make him a metronome and all this stupid stuff, like I oh, will record the toms later. You know, don't record the toms now. Just play the song, and then later on, it's completely unnatural. You come along and do the tom fills. We'll record them separately. I didn't. But it was hard, it was hard to fight against at the time. It's really hard to fight against the zeitgeist. You know, when everybody's going, this is the way it's done, and you're right in the middle of the 1980s, everybody's got it going, this is how you make records. It's very hard to sort of go. And I didn't didn't exactly know what I didn't like about it. I just knew I, I didn't like it, doing it like that. So this is my complete overreaction to that is to make the most spontaneous and fast record with as many weird and wonderful songs as i possibly can
0: yeah someone asked me how your new album is and i said it's ravishing and elliptical so i was on to something
1: (laughs) very good that's really nice ravishing and elliptical i love that i don't even know i don't i don't even know what elliptical really means in this sense but it really sounds good
0: it just doesn't feel tidy. It doesn't feel that there's that the beginning and the middle and the end is the beginning, the middle, and the end. And I love that too. Yeah, um, you know. And I think our brains got wired in the '80s to be. I mean, I, we're around the same age, and and I think that in the '80s we started to expect that tidy thing. Um, and and I, you're right. I mean, even even going although well, Priest equals Aura felt like it was going back to. That wasn't as clinical as the the other ones, right? No, no, that, that was, um,
1: we kind of broke out of, we broke away from that thing with that guy. He was a great producer and he understood, um, he, he under that guy, Gavin McKillop, he really understood, um, what we were trying to do. He wasn't, he wasn't trying to, there was this weird, stupid thing happened where. Producers, instead of being someone who came along and said, I'm here to help you make the album you want to make, whatever it is, they intended instead to be, I do this, and when you work with me, you will be done like this, and you will come out like this, and it will be like this, and it will sound like this. You know, your Steve Lillywhites, and you know, know, all, all those people, they had a sound, that they gave to everything they did that great big snare sound
0: yeah and tight
1: and hard and punchy and big and everybody wanted that um and now i think it's funny you, i mean you can listen to 60s and 70s music and love it and you don't you're not listening to the production or the mix um, but 80s music just really a lot of it is so embarrassing and like is it has aged so badly um, it's just, uh, you know, the epitome of it is stuff like the Thompson twins and Spandau ballet and all that stuff, you know, and people going, you know, having meetings with record executive. I remember a guy said to me when Spandau ballet came out, he, he, a guy in EMI in Australia took me to his office and played me some Spandau ballet. And he said, if you don't sound like that, you're, you're finished in this business. So you better listen to that and take a note, because that's how you're going to have to sound from now on. I was like,
2: oh, no,
1: I don't want to sound like that. I don't want to do that. I paid for this. the, The best thing, though, is I paid for this record myself. And so I completely can call all the shots with everybody, the engineer, the other musicians, everybody else. I do it my way. And I like my way. And it's quick and it's easy and it's fun. And I'm not I'm I'm looking for I'm looking for this elusive performance of a guy sort of who doesn't really know this song very well. He's really excited and he's slightly nervous. And it's refreshing when I read books about David Bowie, that that's how he was working with the albums we like. The Spiders of the Spiders from Mars. I read an interview with Woody Woodman. He, He said we had two. He said, if you were really lucky, we had three takes to get it right. He said, Bowie would come in and play them the song and go, right, go and play it, and often would take that first take. I I don't think that's just because he was in some hurry or he was impatient. I believe he intuitively knew that when people are first learning a song, there's all that thrill of you're sort of hanging on, like, will I be And that sort of triumph when you can get to the end and all the little sort of Little things that happen on the way there. When you've played a song five million times, there's some big, big record exec breathing down your neck. It's a whole different thing. And why wouldn't that sound like it? Why, why? Of course it comes across. You know, all that, all that sort of thing comes across when you listen to those records from ladies that some big shot was making you do it. With my record, I'm sort of, I'm taking that all away and going. Here's really good music, you have to have really good musicians, guys who have been playing a long, long time. They know what they're doing. Just give them a track and let them have a run with it, but not too much, you know, let make sure they're going to do it within two or three goes. I won't tolerate beyond that. If someone's fiddling around, well, that's it. If you do it now, we're not going to have it. Especially because I, the financial necessity of like, I'm paying for this. I've only got two days left because you know it's like still a, it's still in a good studio it's like a thousand bucks a day and um i you know i i've only got five thousand dollars i'm gonna have to do this in five days so everybody knows you haven't got time to sort of to to fiddle around getting looking for things i don't understand if i don't understand what you're looking for um we're not doing it so so that that that's the beauty of this record is, is I could do whatever I wanted and the players were all happy to fall in line because I was paying for it and there was nobody there's no outside expectation there's no sort of i sort of some some I was talking to Robin Hitchcock about this and he was saying these these A&R men they would want you to make a record in a style and it was already two years out of date when they decided that's what they it was already years ago Radiohead did something and then now three years later you're chasing it and then your record is another and by the time it comes out it's all it's all five years old anyway and right. the game the game has moved on those guys never knew what they were talking about the, the only the only record executive worth their salt was Karen Berg who's um, um, you know may she rest in peace a, a lovely woman. Who understood you know that sort of music is is a kind of an ephemeral, elusive thing, and not it's not all about facts and figures and all that stuff. At you know, I just hated all that. The CMJ you hear and this and this format, and that you should do that, and blah, blah blah. I really hate all that. i, I I'm a bohemian. And I'm I'm with my with this record, I reject all of that shit and go, no, music should be live and spontaneous. And you should be a good player. You should be. A good. I don't like people who can't play. I'm, I've got all the time in the world for people who can make a lot of noise on their instrument. I've got a lot of time, all the time in the world for people who can do abstract paintings. But I also want to see if you're going to make if you're going to play a guitar with a screwdriver. I want to hear you do something a play a real solo on it or play a beautiful chord progression. I don't like I don't like noise and so sort of, I don't I don't think there's any for me there's no merit in people who can't play their instruments. so um, I, I, this this method it works with experienced guys who sort of know what they're doing. Um, it wouldn't it doesn't work for a sort of teenage punk band who've only been playing guitar six months.
2: Right. Wow.
0: band members surprise you in a way where you were totally delighted like holy shit i did not see that coming.
1: absolutely absolutely time okay. and time again yeah time and time again we would all be singing and go whoa and sometimes with good players see one of my one of my functions is is i give i i've always been good at giving players a space in which to do their thing even though i'm i am i i I'm probably the worst musician out of all the people on on this album, but I I can sort of and when people were trying to um, make everything reconcile and make everything in its right place, I'm going no 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 that's to just fuck it up a little bit more, you know be be more it can can be looser than that it doesn't have to all sort of start here and end here and all the eyes have to be and the t's have to be crossed so i i'm sort of i'm sort of my my thing is to sort of reprogram them to let them do this loose thing because because players are still kind of a lot of players are laboring under that illusion that everything has to be neat and tidy and i don't right. think it does
0: is is sequencing that big of a deal then anymore or is it because people used to labor over sequencing like song sequencing um, uh, like well, the order does that even matter i had
1: i had 23 songs and i didn't know i didn't know how to sequence them sequence them so i i just wrote them all each name down on a bit of paper and i sat there for about a day jiggling them all around um there's no real there's no real meaning in the sequencing it's not uh it doesn't it doesn't sort of tell a story of there's no meaning it's just it's just a way of of best presenting all these songs trying to avoid similar tempos and similar keys i'm um, in, in fact I was trying to get the biggest sort of um between each song I was trying to exploit the most difference so if i have a if i have a really wild noisy nasty kind of song the next one after that i want something sweet and nice i want i wanted the i it it seems to me music can do so much in a great record has so much in a great song like from one chord or one verse to another there's so much scope and so much difference and then Getting back to the eighties again, it seemed songs were linear and nothing much happened, and everything uh, sort of just, you know, like so. I'm I'm looking to get the most, like if 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 it was a painting, I'm trying to use the brightest colors, so you mm. go whoa, you know, like it's I I don't I don't want a grey painting. I want a wild, living. Uh, it's like the nature in Australia. The nature in Australia. It influences me. It's absolutely irrepressible. It doesn't care about your concrete or your roads or 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 the guys hitting it with the stuff trying to kill it. It's just growing everywhere. Everything's flowering and there's all these birds and, and, and nature is just irrepressible. I'm trying to do that with these songs. This irrepressible tangle of information that you can't even, I don't want people to sit down you know, I, 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 I want them to not understand what's making all the noise. I want to have this sort of rush of sound and all, you know, the cellos and the all the exotic instruments those guys were playing, all everything sort of working away in the background all the while, like these kind of machines all gone amok, like the vegetation with all the things just growing and tangling and collapsing down and then coming back up again. That's sort of what I'm trying to sort of imitate. The sort of wonder of nature but not with dissonance i don't like this. i like a little bit of just dis- a little bit of dissonance is great a little bit of a sort of grinding thing but really all the time i'm sort of going for so sort of beautiful beautiful kind of stuff
0: it's that it's sort of like nature plus capturing that sort of idea that the, that the beats had in the 50s of you know the spontaneity of the moment is the most pure yeah. Right? That's yeah. The, that's the most pure yeah. take you can have. So yeah. the more takes that you do, the further you get from the truth of the claim. That's
1: right. That, that, that That's right. And there's a sweet spot where um, the absolutely, you know, the first take can be chaotic because nobody really understands. And then the second or third take, that will be the sweet spot. And then if you keep going beyond that and they learn it more and more and more, then you start to lose all that stuff and it's great when I made 11 women which was the first time I I'd really done this it was great inviting people over and going like play my new album and they go people going wow I I really like this I it's something about it that I really like it sort of it makes me happy it's sort of um it was unexpected to them um to hear to hear this sort of just rambling kind of thing with these different instruments. I, I, I don't know. It's, yeah, it is. It's an imi- imitation of nature rather than. So in try. So in try to instead of trying to make music like a city, I'm trying to make music like a jungle. You know, I I don't want I don't want square, dominating. You know, I want some ah. You know, that's that's what I'm looking for, and so sort of overwhelm people. Um, and, and and get rid of all the ideas that things have to be perfect. They have to be beautiful, but they don't have to be perfect. It's like, it's like imagine having a beautiful woman and she wakes up in the morning and her hair's tangled and sort of the, you know, and then, I always thought that with my mum. My mum looked really beautiful and then she'd go in the hairdresser and she'd have this helmet-like head and put all this makeup on and I'd go, oh, mom I don't like that. I like I like you that natural sort of. That's I guess that's what I'm trying to do with the music. Get back to the na- natural beauty, not sort of artificial, forced sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, you're like deprocessing it.
1: Yes, yes. Um, de evolution.
0: De- yeah,
1: right, yeah.
0: right. And I mean, a jungle is random. Uh, and dangerous and beautiful, but there is also an order to it, even though you can't see it, there's still an order to it. So There is. Right? There
1: is. There is. And um, being a bit of a painter, it always surprises me if you try and paint a bunch of trees, each tree has its own thing. Um, Each tree has its own way of, of sort of looking, and you have to treat each tree... You know when you paint a gum tree it's different to a pine tree and that's different to a to to an oak. They all have their own kind of seemingly random. I'm a big swimmer, I swim a lot and I swim in a sea pool and I'm constantly looking at the patterns and and then I go, the patterns that I see here are like the patterns on a zebra. And they're the same patterns in the water as it makes in the sand. And the way the birds fly and the way the, the clouds are in the sky, they all have these patterns that are so hard to grasp what it is. You know it when you see it, but when you try and reproduce it, it's really it's really hard to produce. Even tiger stripes. I mean, everybody knows what tiger stripes are, but try and paint them yourself. And the moment it gets slightly too geometrical you go oh, they're not tiger that's not a real tiger stripes there's this there's this sort of undulating pattern that nature has. I'm constantly trying to refer to that and trying to reproduce that in in the music that i'm starting to do now that that's my sort of goal is is to produce that that sort of that 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 definite pattern but not a sort of a geometrical, human, arithmetic sort of pattern.
0: And what's cool is that it sounds like you're more creatively alive than you've ever been. I mean, this is like terribly exciting.
1: I I, I am. Um, I really, look, I had a real purple patch back in the 80s um, where, where I was writing a lot. Um, I wrote loads and loads of songs. It was like my hobby. To write songs—that's what I did—and I had my four-track, and I was living with my brother. And every night, a little bunch of guys would gather at my place, and we'd smoke dope, and everyone would sit around watching me write songs, sort of offering suggestions and going, "Wow, and let me go home. I've got this new synthesizer." That goes, Ooh, and so sort of—I had a real pur- purple patch with that, just um, just loving music and loving um, a- as a kid. It's a funny, as a kid, I always knew I wanted to be a musician. I knew I wanted to write songs, and I just couldn't. I couldn't play and I couldn't write. I had these grandiose ideas and I had no way of how to do them. When it all started to dawn on me how to do it, I still revel in it. I revel when I pick up a song, pick up a guitar and knock out a song in five minutes, I revel in that. Because once, it's like a man who couldn't see, who can now can see, I revel in the in the creativity um, of that. And, and, and I remember, I always remember back when I couldn't do that, when I could, when it didn't come to me. And I sort of, so right now I'm, I'm going through that sort of purple patch, really reveling in my own, even if nobody else is, I'm reveling in my own creativity and enjoying how easy it is. And especially without any pressure, because, you know, you know, the pressure of, ah, oh, you know, that people put on, you've got to be successful. And it doesn't matter. I I, I think, you know, I think I, I want to make something that, you know, maybe in 30 years when I'm long gone, someone somewhere will pick up this record and go, wow, that's a way of doing things. And we'll sort of perceive, perceive what I've done. I, I'm sort of, i I really feel like I'm trying to strike a blow against that. I know I keep harping on about this eighties ordered <laughs> snare drum, sort of um, Steve Lily white or whoever the fuck it was, you know, um, I, I, I'm really trying to strike a blow against all of that. Like a, like a surrealist poet who's striking against the traditional sort of poetry of, you know, how the old, you know, poets used to do it. And now it's going, no, so you can do anything you every, you know, it should, it, it's It should be beautiful and wild and free um yeah it's taken me a long taking me a long time to get here alex um it really has like 66 started playing 50 years ago um it didn't i didn't see it's taken me a long time to realize this or throw off but it's 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 so liberating when you realize what it could be um it doesn't all have to be that tight sort of thing i mean i have to go back to the church and you know i see they're doing that cruel world festival they've reanimated it now for 2022 when i play there i won't be able to have all these ideas you know that's going to have to be it will be you know boom 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 you know it'll, it'll have to be it will have to be more ordered and um it will have to have more reason and rhyme to it i won't it can't just be this crazy thing and i accept that um that that's what what people are going to want to hear but on my own i'm i sort of as long as i can afford to make any more records i'm going sort of, to pursue this sort of agenda of sort of wild of the wild where the wild music is
0: i know what you mean though because I, I love the triffids and the record with uh bear me deep in love is so overproduced to my ear Um, yes right i mean david was brilliant and he what he was doing was amazing and i thought god that record has so many so many coats of of production on it if they had just stripped it back it would be so much better right
1: i i thought the album before that born sandy devotional which is my favorite mine too it was it was still old school it was like everybody was playing and the songs could breathe and live. And then, yeah, they made that album, Calenture.
0: Yeah. That's and suddenly
1: one. it was a record company. It was a drum machine. There was somebody going, you know, we could sell, we could sell a lot of radio. You guys have got to break America. And suddenly it was compromised. The vision, the the wild vision was of, of David was, was compromised into drum machines and quantizing and whatever technology they had back then they were throwing at the record and and trying to make the band and then uh, and then i i think that the their last the the, the triffids present the black swan uh. suffered suffered from that as well trying to sort of have a hit but for a moment on born sandy devotional when it was all wild and rambling as much yeah. as it possibly could be um that's such a fantastic record but people interfered um you know when when they interfere with you and you're just a young musician like him it's hard to argue back when someone's going we're going to give you this much money to make a record but we want blah 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 to be involved and this guy comes in and he's got all these ideals you don't really understand he's gonna you know we're gonna you know you're gonna record with a click track it's all gonna be so that you guys don't speed up or slow down and you know all this sort of stuff it's really hard to fight back against it you know now if you could take me back there i'd give him a fucking earful of of abuse but at the time i was just like oh really do i have to you know do do we do we have to do that oh okay i guess so if i if i want to be on arista i've got to put up with these guys telling me how to do it and it's very hard to it's very hard when you're in the middle of it all it's hard to see it now looking back on it i can see why it didn't work out for me
0: advocating for yourself is very very difficult one of the nice things about getting older it's a it's not a long list but one of the things i like is it's easier for me to say no now
2: <laughs> <laughs> took, took 50
1: That's years true. yeah <laughs> the other good thing about being old is the cops don't And the customs men don't care about you. You could you could walk in with a pack with a pocket full of uranium and they just go, go through, sir, you know, because oh, he's just an old guy. So nobody, it's that I like that. Um, I like that sort of invisibility that sort of age, age gives you. Um, but it's always perplexed me why old rockers lose the plot. Yeah. Like why why it's so it's it's a it's a standard, you sort of if you have an old artist, if you have an artist of sixty-six, like a painter, you'd expect him to be doing his most wild and wonderful stuff as he gets old. Like Picasso, as he gets older and older, he gets better and better. The musicians, that sort of like, it's it's rock musicians, has taken this other path where they sort of narrow it all down, and, and you're expected to sort of do the go around doing the, these perfect renditions of these old songs from ages ago, sort of a love the eagles but and that, the eagle now i don't uh, the eagles do it so wonderfully and are so good i imagine that is a beautiful experience but when you make everybody do it that way um and sort of the old musicians in australia just trotting out their old stuff you know and, and also this sort of disconnectedness that, that sort of a lot of old musicians get like bowie got until right at the end when he went, no, I don't want to yeah. do that anymore. And you see, I just saw an article the other day, the albums David Bowie hated, like Tonight and Never Let Me Down. Well, I fucking hated them too, David. I hated them too. Why did you do that? Um, why did it take you so long to... Re- what, you of all people that had all the freedom that could do this wonderful, bizarre stuff. Um, even he, they try and... The whole business is trying to squeeze you down and repackage you and turn you in look at whoever else is around you know like and, and and make you like that um and why um so so i i it seems to me old musicians should be at the top of their game with all that right. experience and all the stuff they know um and look at dylan who finally has been turning it around and then finally came out with that album you know the, the last one he did in that 90 minute long song uh, and it was brilliant it was chaotic and it was but it was um it was so much better than the dylan with a big producer and a drum machine doing like as epitomizer, sort of like down in the groove and re- albums you've completely forgotten about um, sort of you know when when they get dave stewart in and try and you know bob now you're going to make a record that sounds like the eurythmics or something um so yeah that's that's my fight is to sort of is to be an old guy still um still as inspired as i ever was as a teenager not be sort of a guy who comes on stage you know like and it's just boring and tedious and everything's in its right place and um that's my struggle to sort of to to for myself to just bring this back for whoever appreciates it or doesn't um, it's still it's at the moment sort of what's really keeping me going um to, to come, go on making music like this i'm having a lot of resistance too um, are you i'm uh, yeah i'm doing some shows and the, i haven't sold many tickets and the promoter goes can't you just do some church songs in there so people know what they're going to get and i'm like no i can't i don't i can't when the church plays the church will do those songs in some big theater but for me i i i don't want to i don't want to do that i don't why can't why can't people trust me and go along with me <laughs> i don't know I, I guess we've been we've been burned too many times by sort of um you know like like you mccartney's like why does he do these why does he why does he write um those sort of songs he's writing now, those kind of you know, silly love songs in his own words. Why doesn't he write Helder Skelter and stuff? Why doesn't he go back to all the wildness? Why does being old mean you have to be tame? Well you
0: it's funny you that it's say a all $50 this.
1: million dollar question, isn't it?
0: Well you know what it's a great question, but you know Marty Wilson Piper was on this show two years ago and he asked me the same question about Fleetwood Mac. He said, why don't they don't they have any songs? <laughs> He's like, Why are you <laughs> I thought that's a f- I never thought about it Steve but I thought that's kind of a good question you know yeah either so either you go into self-parody or you don't make yeah. any music at all I mean his his question about Fleetwood Mac it's like I can't name their last new song and he thought don't they have anything in the in the archives <laughs> if
1: nothing yeah yeah uh, I know I know well that's I guess that's the business I guess that's because there's so much There's so much money riding on it and it's, it's so it's become part of the entertainment business. And it's not that wild sort of maverick thing, mercurial thing that it was. Um, And nothing is worse. Imagine being Fleetwood Mac and you know, whoever the latest record company is say, we're going to give you guys $50 million, but we want an album like rumors. Right. How do you, that's the, that's the thing they were always saying to me. Why can't you write another song like Under the Milky Way? I I don't know. How do you do that? Why don't you? I used to say, Why don't you fucking write it? I'll play it for you. I don't know how to. I don't know how to do that. Um. And when when we did try it, try and be commercial, I never liked the results. It sounded like, it sounded like a bunch of guys trying to write something commercial, which they didn't even understand what it was. And that, yeah, as I, as we were saying before, the record execs are always at least five years behind the times, right. or they're influenced by whoever the latest guy is who's having a lot of success,
0: you know. Um, so, well, when you play that festival, is that is that an exercise in you just sort of looking the other way of your real artistic heart, or how do you do? How do you get through that?
1: I just have I I have to accept. Because we're getting a lot of money and there'll be a lot of people there, uh, it won't be able to be a wild, um, a, a wild meditation on nature. It has to be this song and this song and this song and this sound, and it will have to begin and end, and will have to be professional. I am within that, it, within under that term of professional. I try and make it as as unprofessional as I possibly can, and sort of still try and have a bit of life and movement and feeling. Um, but it's, I, I, I would much. I, it's, it's sort of that's that's my job. I have to do that, and that's are you see. It's very complicated. It's also you do have to take in, into mind a bit the audience expectation, and if the church is playing at a big festival you know, they're going to want to hear songs of starfish and stuff. And I have to, I have to accept that and I have to, I have to try and render them in the most lively and exciting way I possibly can. Um, I can be professional. I can play properly and sing properly and, you know, properly. Um, And that's, it just has to be a schizophrenic thing where I do that outside, you know, to make, the big bucks and but when i'm left to my own devices and i finance my own record it's going to be kind of the opposite of that but still trying to trying to bring some um sort of integrity to to all of
0: it for whatever it is yeah and i mean when i was 16 i got the slow crack i was working in radio at <laughs> camp, right and i remember like hearing it and going well this a steve Kilby solo record is not a church record to me it was very no. different even as a teenager i could hear it And I, and I hear it more now it's the demarcation is even more clear. Um, Yeah. So, so it seems like you can separate Steve Kilby from the church. You, 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 you you can, yeah, on my own,
1: on my own, I just do whatever I want Um, with the church, I have to sort of play the game a little bit, but that's that that's just, I I always accepted it to be that way. And I never wanted my solo records to compete with the church. I am, however, I am, after Marty and Peter left, a lot of people going, you can't go on as the church. They were, they were everything. You're just the bass player. You know, so what you wrote some song, but you know, without them, you're nothing. And I, I'm so sort of very tempted I'm very tempted to make a faux church record and go, this is me making a faux church record just to show you I can do it. I can make a record that sound that you would think is the church if I wanted to. I can, I can in the studio, I can play the guitars and with a drummer, I can make a record that sound just like what you think the church should sound like if I want to, because they were wonderful but my career doesn't begin and end with them and the church was always my band with my songs and um i I sort of i was i resent the thing that that without them i i i I can't do it so i'm very tempted i'm not sure what i'm going to do about that yet but it's definitely sort of it's ticking away in my head that i that i should make a faux church record just to really confound people just to show them that i could do it theoretically i could do it on my own um it's sort of like an it's sort of like a stupid interesting project for me to, to <laughs> consider
0: sometimes <laughs> and you call it you would call it faux because it's it's not what people would yeah. yeah
1: it's not really the church it's just me but but uh, it's i don't know it's very hard like when you start talking about this it's very you get to a very place where, where you're being very immodest but the church was my idea The the sound of the church, yes, I need a guitarist to to help me do it. But um, if you look at what they do now, they're not in the church. It doesn't really sound much like the church, but um, uh, I I, I sort of, I guess in a very childish way, it pisses me off when people say that you can't be, you can't do the church without Marty and Peter. And it's still going on and, on and on and on and on. Oh, I miss Marty. Bring him back and all this sort of stuff. And he's never coming back. He doesn't want to come back. He did his time. He had enough. He moved on. The other guy did his time. The other guy did almost forty years, Peter. And 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 now they've gone. And the church is mine to carry on with who whichever players I see fit to be in it. And it was never, um, you know that people see that lineup. With them, those two, and Richard Plug that that you know should have stopped there. That you should, never should have gone on when they left. But bugger them, you know. I, it's mine to do with whatever I like, and I, I yeah, I wouldn't mind just doing a faux church album just to show them that it yeah. can be done. I don't know if I will ever do it. But
0: it's Frankly, of a church. I don't know if this is going to like like take the to make you feel differently about things, but like when people say that to you, I don't think they're even talking about the church. I think they're talking about themselves. I think yes. they're just saying like they identify with that record at that time in their life. It has yeah. nothing to do with the church. It has, oh, yeah. Right.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I see on, on because it's only in the last five years that this phenomenon of these fan pages on Facebook and other places have solidified. And I see all these guys, in their 50s dribbling over a ticket stub I right, here's a ticket stub when i saw them in columbus ohio in 1986 and that'll get like five thousand comments wow look at that ticket stub look oh that was the good old days yes when i was young so i agree with you a lot of it is and a lot of it and listen to me criticizing mccartney going why can't he be like the beatles anymore it's like everybody's expectation is to want to pull you back to their own idea of of when your golden age was um and so there is a lot of nostalgia and you're right it's a lot to do with them it's about it's they that's when they grew up and um it brings back lovely memories for them of being 18 and at college and right. going out going out with their first girlfriend rather than 19 in so you know now they're Say fifty-five, and they've got a job. Uh, they haven't got time. They don't want to hear my new record necessarily. Uh, they want to go back and listen to Heyday over, over and over and over and over and over, and talk about it with the guys, other guys who love it. And really, my new records don't have any any place in that. It's sort of like, I guess it's the same. I always say it's the same thing as McCartney's up against. He can, he can, he can make all the solo records he likes. And if I didn't see him when he was in Australia, but he he said, um, I'm going to play a couple of new songs uh, that you probably don't want to hear. And then I'll play all the ones you do want to hear. And I guess yeah. that's just I guess that's just something you're kind of with rock and roll. You're up against.
0: Yeah, because people, you know, Marty Marty's a great guitar player and he I love what he did, but I think but people identify him with that moment in time, and that's why they defend him. If he had been somebody else, they'd be defending somebody else. It has nothing to do with with the people. It has to do with with their experience and where they were. Yeah. And they confuse the two. Well, as I
1: say, nostalgia ain't what it used to be. Right,
0: right. I think nostalgia nostalgia is a swindle, frankly. I think it's a trick, you know? Yeah,
1: except when it's your own nostalgia. And then you're like, oh, I remember that. Oh, I I remember that recording. You know, I was 15 and stuff. Yeah. But it's it's easy to see it in other people and go, oh God, that's a terrible thing to be happening.
0: Yeah, that's true. By the way, did you know David from the Triffids? Were you guys friends?
1: Um, we weren't friends. Um I think we were we played with him a few times and we had sort of a rivalry. And he thought I was a sort of a a corporate, a guy who'd sort of he he was probably a because I, I, we had more success with him. He was probably thought I was a sort of a corporate rocker. Mm. And I thought he seemed a little bit too good for me. Um, he, he he, seemed like he was I sort of I didn't. In those days, everyone was a was a rival. Every everybody in the music business. I didn't have any friends with anybody because they were all rivals. And some of them were more successful and some of them were weren't as successful as me but they were doing something that the underground critics were saying this is the latest thing that's why it surprised me so much when i became friends with grant yeah because I, I he sort of approached me and we became really good friends and i've he he i've i thought he was too underground and had too much critical acclaim to want to hang out with me because i would sort of had a big record deal and i'd sold millions of records so um it I, I I had my I was I had my armour up unnecessarily and I froze out a lot of really good people who I could have hung out with and I, I was too I was too obsessed with the whole game of I'm here and you're there and he's there and I and sort of I felt intense rivalry with every with everybody that I met or played with or you know I, I hated people who were doing better than me and <laughs> I hated people getting better better reviews than me and I'm not like that anymore. Um well not as much anyway. Um but I, I sort of I I I met David and I could have maybe been friends with him but I was so I didn't speak to him
0: much. You're the first guy to admit that you that you were competitive. Everybody else goes, "No, we were all cool, but you I'm glad that you admitted that. Yeah, you were competitive."
1: Yeah, I was. Yeah. It seemed, it seemed like the more for him, the less for me, you know, if this guy's getting good reviews, I won't get as good reviews. If this and how many other businesses are there? We've got an index an absolute, a a weekly index of going, I'm here on the charts. He's there. This guy's there. This guy's down here. I'm playing at this venue. It holds a thousand. This guy's playing a venue holds 2,000. And this guy's playing a venue that holds 100. And I'm staying at the Hollywood blah, blah, blah hotel. And he's at the deluxe one. And this other guy's staying at a red roof down the road. There's so many indexes where you can constantly compare where you are. Like if you're an architect, say you're a very competitive architect or doctor or whatever, it must be harder to get some kind of view of of where you are. And now the music business is, is... diffuse so it's not so much like that. But back in those days, and managers were always going, you know, you guys could be as big as you too. You know, there, you know, you if you do the right thing, you could, you could be they they were the ones that's always being, you know, you guys could be as big as you too if you tried. Like and it sort gives you a false sense of you're always worried about who's coming up and who's going down and your latest figures. And as soon as you started doing badly, you know someone to ring you up and give you you know you've only sold this many this week you know i remember it's really hilarious i remember one day i read kip winger do you remember that band winger of course winger winger was getting out of the business because his latest record had only sold four hundred thousand. it only sold 400 and he was going that's it i'm quitting it only did 400,000 people going, poor old Kip. He's only sold. Can you imagine these days if you could sell 400,000 CDs? You'd, you'd be, be like, number one ah, on the
0: chart. You'd be number one. You'd be you would be number yeah. one. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. For weeks.
1: Yeah. For um, yeah, for, so, for weeks. So 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 everything is everything's kind of relative and um and you know, I don't even know. I don't it's all the charts and all of that stuff sort of become meaningless. Um and and there's so much stuff out there it's really hard to i imagine i don't try but i imagine it's really hard to keep up with it you know with all the magazines i used to i used to read all those english magazines and some american ones cream and things like that sure to sort of find out what was going on to find out who were the latest you know do you read a little article on someone and say this guy's someone to watch and i'd be watching him um but now it's all kind of that's there's uh, you know a zillion people everybody's everybody's a, a musician and everybody's a critic everybody's got a podcast everybody's got a got pro tools at home making their own records um it's also very hard to to get a fix on it um what what is important and what isn't so i've kind of i've just let it all go and I just do what I can. And I, don't, I don't think about all that stuff anymore.
0: But I know what you mean because I, I teach university for a living, and I, if I'm talking to a student, I go, "Well, who did you, you have for that English class?" And they go, "Oh, I had so and so. He was so great." My first thought is, "Fuck that guy." <laughs> like, <which is laughs> like, I don't know why I had that reaction, but I'm competitive too. Where I go, "What do you mean yeah. he was good? I'm way better in my brain." And I'm like, "What's wrong with you? Why do you think like that? That's crazy." Yeah. yeah. You know. Well, you're
1: gonna have. You've got to have a little bit of that. Um, you've got to have a little bit of that to keep you going. But yeah. when it when it gets out of control, it can ruin your life. When you can com- when you're competitive, sort of, when that competitive nature, uh, it can really ruin any triumphs you have. You can e- always diminish them by going, yeah, you know, I sold I sold a million records, but blah blah blah, sold five million. So now I feel completely underwhelmed with myself. Um, so yeah, competitive that that competitiveness ruined it, ruined a lot of the fun for me. But it was always like, you know, you come off stage and go, "Wow, that was a great gig," and your manager go, "Yeah, but blah 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 was just playing down the road," and he had a completely full house, and you know he's you know he's uh, you know so you there's always someone to tell you how even if you don't do it yourself, we had American managers who were fixated on all of that. You know, like this guy here, you could, you know, you could be that one day if you play your cards, right? And managers who were sort of pretending they had the answer. If you listen to what I say, um, none of them knew anything. I have a lot of contempt for managers. They're sort of like the lowest, because every other job in the music business, you have to know something. To be a player, you have to know something. To be an agent, you have to know how to book a gig. To be a, a roadie, or, or or to be a bartender, or a bouncer, or the door girl, all of them. But to be a manager, you just walk in a room and go to a bunch of teenagers, "Hi guys, I will be your manager," and they go, "Yes," and I'll take twenty percent of the gross. Yes, but you might not know anything at all, and you might, and you're not even accountable. Our managers. Our managers, the one particular guy, he was, we would do tours that would lose 400,000 pounds of Europe, which Arista would jump in and pay. But the guy was still taking his his 20% of the gross off the top. And he had no, there was no reason for him, there was no reason for him to keep the cost down. Why, why not have the biggest lighting rig and having a whole load of roadies you didn't need and a great big tour bus you couldn't afford and stay in hotels you couldn't afford because it was no incentive. He was taking a gross cut. So it looked on paper, we were getting $20,000 a night. That was our fee. And he got $4,000 every time we walked on stage. He didn't, it didn't, it, it's like, it's really, it's unbelievable that then the tour would lose 400 grand, which you would, which you go into debt for, which means all of the following records, you know, like Starfish sold a lot of records, and then they each record sold less and less and less, and they're all all of the debts piled up on top. So whatever money Starfish could ever make will just forever be, you know, for my grandchildren, we'll still be paying off that debt of that one tour where we lost four hundred thousand pounds. But the bastard who organised it, even though it was a complete failure, he still got four grand every time we walked on stage. I remember, I've said this over and over, but I remember ringing him up one night and said, ah, uh, let me get this straight. Will you take 20% of the gross? And he went, yeah. I said, so you get four grand every time we walked on stage. I, I, he said, yeah. And I said, we're paying five or six gigs a week, so you're making like 20 grand a week. He went, yeah. I said, no, I'm on $800 a week. He went, yeah. I said, but that's not right. And he said, you don't understand showbiz and he said one day you will eventually you will outstrip me but that of course that day for 99.99999 percent of artists that day will never come right. you'll never be able to you'll never be able to get that much you'll never be able to get ahead of your manager you know so i i really i really don't have a lot of time for managers i know there are some good ones out there but my experience of them were i thought they were real parasites that you know, they had the hide. This particular guy who was our manager during our heyday, um, a guy had the hide to ring me up and say, Hi, I'm working on a book about this guy. And he, he we want to know if you have any reminiscences. And I said, Yeah, he was a fat, greedy, lazy leech that sucked all of our money out of us. Every time we were about to earn any money, he would take it all for himself. I said, That's my reminiscence. I never heard back from him. <laughs> but what do you think I'm going to say? Right. You know, like, wow, yeah, thanks for, thanks for discovering me and, you know, putting me at the top. Yeah, I, yeah. I guess that didn't make it into the book. I, you know, I, um, I came to that point in the book and I thought I can either open up this can of worms and completely lambast, lambaste this guy and i decided not to i decided just to let it go it wasn't it wasn't really worth it it was um yeah all that bitterness but look at you know you look at every fucking band you know look at john fogarty you know with that 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 guy whoever that was oh just, yeah
0: that's so, uh, uh zanz Z- Zan. what is that it's all yeah 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 um
1: yeah they're 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 awful guys
0: yeah and he and john's still still not very happy about that and understand he's still probably
1: he's still probably a percentage of everything he does goes to that guy
0: yeah right right well have you so you you said that you've that you've developed some friendships over over the last few years that you wouldn't have developed before that must be kind of gratifying
1: yeah um i'm not i'm not i'm not so competitive anymore i'm more approachable I, i i don't have that that sort of chip on my shoulder where I couldn't I couldn't talk to people. Um yeah, I'm I'm trying to enjoy it now.
0: Yeah. Are you friends with Robert at all from Go Betweens? Mm,
1: I'm sad to say I wanted to be his friend. He never liked me. Um <laughs> so no, I unfortunately I'm not. Um and in in the book he wrote, Me and Grant, or Grant and I, or whatever that book was called, oh, yeah. Grant and me, he wrote. That Grant made a record with me, and I it said I had a big ego. What was it he wrote? He said I had a big, I I had a big ego and a big mouth to match. So no, he didn't like me. um He doesn't. He doesn't like me much. That's okay. That's yeah. okay. Um, I didn't like that book much. I didn't think it was very good. But I, I do really admire his. I do really admire his songs. I thought the go betweens were one band. That had two songwriters, and they both complimented each other. And, and usually, they were the songs they wrote were kind of fitted together; they weren't at odds with each other. So, I have a lot of respect for him. Um, I would would have liked to have been his friend, but it never happened.
0: And did you know Peter from The Apartments? Do you know that guy?
1: Yeah, I know him. Um, I'm sort of friendly. I'm if I see him, I'd be friendly with him. I we we tried to write some songs together back in the '90s uh he's he's a pretty nice guy yeah um peter milton mosh yeah
0: yeah really nice guy yeah we're sort of we're on speaking terms for sure well i'm glad you're on speaking terms with people steve (laughs) (laughs) hey um really great work i love the record i love that you explained to me what's going on with it because it makes so much sense to me to hear you say that okay Um, thanks alex yeah i I appreciate your time man thanks for chatting okay
1: okay mate speak to you again
2: sometime
0: Well, there you go. Uh, Steve Kilby. We'll get him back on the show. There's a lot more to talk about with Steve Kilby. Uh, and the most important thing to talk about right now is his new album, The Hall of Counterfeits. It's amazing. Get it. I know amazing is one of those words that is overused. Um, but trust me, it's astounding. How about that one? Do you like that one better? Uh, it is raw and it's alive And yeah, it's experimental, uh, but it's also very accessible. I have spent hours listening to this album, and each listen uh, brings more and more rewards. So you'll see what I mean. Get it. Spend time with it. Take a long drive with it. Go down the coast or up the coast or into the woods. (laughs) I don't know. Whatever you need to do to give this record time to unfold, it will be worth it. I promise. Maybe it's going to be at the gym. Maybe it's going to be on the treadmill for, you know, seven or eight hours. Trust me, the time will zip by. Uh, Steve Kilby has so much music and so much work out there. uh, It's only fitting that there's a couple of different ways to access Steve Kilby. Um, TheTimeBeing.com is one way to do it. Uh, SteveKilby.BandCamp.com is another way to do it. TheChurchBand.net, that's another uh, Steve Kilby solution. Uh, You can also order The Hall of Counterfeits from your local record store. Go to them, and uh, they will get it for you. Don't get it on Amazon. Come on. Do you really need to send Jeff Bezos into space again? Uh, One Time is more... Then we should uh, have to tolerate. So, all right, get Steve's album. I want to hear from you. I want to hear what you think of it. So, send me a note. Editor at stereoembersmagazine.com. You can follow me on Twitter at emberseditor. You can follow me on Instagram at emberspodcast. And you can also check out Bombshell Radio at bombshellradio.com. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use subscribe, maybe leave us a nice rating, a couple of stars, five would be nice, and uh, tell all your friends. Even tell people that you don't think are your friends, and maybe you want to be closer to them, and maybe the podcast is the bridge. Maybe it's the thing that's going to bring you closer to people that are currently strangers. I'd be okay with that. Let's close the show with a longer listen to Swinging on the Moon from Steve Kilby's new album, The Hall of Counterfeits. Enjoy it, and thank you as always for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast, only right here on Bombshell Radio.
2: You'll be making